Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. This is found on page 815 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible or don't own one, please feel free to take that Pew Bible with you uh, as a gift from us. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, reads like this. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not Two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Anthony. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and really glad that you've uh, chosen to be with us here this morning. Thanks for celebrating uh, with us. And uh, last week I wasn't here um, because uh, we just added a new member to our family. So Isla Joy was born last Friday, and we're really glad about that. Yeah. Um, So thank you for your encouragement and notes and congratulations. Uh, Both Rachel and Isla are doing really well, and Lucy is excited to be a big sister. So thank you for uh, for your prayers, for your encouragement in that. Um, And this morning, before we take a look at the passage that Paul, or excuse me, that Anthony uh, read for us, would love to uh, pause and pray, um, because while we can certainly uh, intellectually uh, comprehend words that are written to us, uh, if those words of Scripture are actually going to become words of life to us and transform who we are, we need God's Spirit involved in that process as well. And so I want to pray and just ask that He would be active doing that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you, that you speak to us, um, that you are not silent, that you are there and you are not silent. That you speak richly in the world that you have made in the sunshine, and the trees, and the flowers that bloom. And yet, you have gone further to give us the gift of your word that speaks so clearly. I pray now that we would hear your voice um, and that you would work to transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, so much of what we do as people, both consciously and unconsciously, is much of the time uh, driven or, or at least in some part influenced by what we're afraid of, by what we fear. And social scientists like Barry Glasner in his staple work, The Culture of Fear, points out that American culture in particular is shaped by fear. And in large part, Glasner makes a case in his work that this is because fear sells. We've probably all heard it at some place or another that, that sex sells, but fear also sells, and, and I think probably even more so than sex. And there's no limit to what we will spend when we're, in, when we're afraid of something, right? Which is why some of the most powerful advertising uh, is named, is, is addressed um, not toward sex, but toward what we're afraid of. So take this commercial, for instance. Right? And we, we could chuckle at that ad, but I remember the first time I saw it. I mean, it was during the Super Bowl. I can't remember when. It was, it's an old ad. But the first time I saw it, I actually found myself sort of like getting, getting teary. And almost now, every time I watch it, I get a little choked up. And, and second, ever since I've seen that ad, I've wanted to buy a Subaru. Because it's like, <laughs> seriously, it's like, wait, you have a car that will keep my family alive even in some horrific accident. Yes, here you go. You can have all of my money. Um, because we're driven so much by what we're we're afraid of. Fear, it's such a powerful force and, and perhaps outmatched only by love and, and its opposite of love, hate. And we live in a world, a culture in which fear are increasingly dominant. Pulitzer Prize winning um, novelist and essayist Marilyn Robbins, she wrote the, the book Gilead, which is a brilliant book. Um, she notes in writing and speaking about fear that her thesis is always the same. She says, first, contemporary America is full of fear, and second, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. But no one seems to have an unkind word to say about fear these days, unchristian as it surely is. I think she points out so wisely here that fear operates as an appetite or an addiction. You can never be safe enough. And in the current political climate as well, there's no way you get elected by saying everything is great, we don't have anything to fear. Things are getting better. No, if you want to be elected, you have to say things are, are bad and getting worse and you should be afraid. And, and if, if I'm not elected or my party isn't elected, then darkness will triumph. But all of this fear, it, it has a cost. And New York Times columnist David Brooks uh, wrote a column earlier this year, and he talks about the fact that we are living in an age of what he calls an age of small terror where the resulting fear and anxiety are slowly making us less humane as people, as a culture. He writes this. He says, these days we live at risk of a random terror, whether we are in Paris or San Bernardino or Boston or Fort Hood. And many of us have had brushes with these sorts of attacks. In the age of small terror, this anxiety induces a sense that the basic systems of authority are not working, that those in charge are not keeping people safe. And his people are more likely to have a background sense that life is nastier and more precarious, red in tooth and claw. They pull in the tribal walls and distrust the outsider. And this anxiety makes, us, makes everybody a little less humane. So, so fear is everywhere, whether it's a, a fear of small terror or a fear of losing your job or your health or the approval of a colleague or a friend at school, or of being called on in class and not being able or ready to answer. See, fear is everywhere, but we don't have to be afraid. 
Fear is everywhere, but we don't have to be afraid. And what Jesus shows us this morning is that the way you fight fear is actually with a better fear. You see, you fight fear with fear. And we've been in this series in the Gospel of Matthew for a little while now. We've kind of begun a new series within Matthew. We're calling um, Responding to the King. In Gospels, there's four of them in the New Testament. Really, they're just they're theological biographies of Jesus' life. And this week and last week, we're looking at Jesus' teaching that he's giving to his 12 disciples, this kind of selected group of, of inner followers, and he's sending them out on mission to do and proclaim the very things that Jesus has been doing and proclaiming, and to sort of get them ready, to get them ready for this, this work that he's sending them to do, he's teaching them. That's what we have in chapter 10 of Matthew. And Jesus explains to them they're going to get a variety of responses as they go forward. And we're going to see this in the coming chapters of Matthew. Sometimes people are going to respond really positively to Jesus and his message and his followers. Other times people are going to be a bit more neutral. Um, Maybe they're interested, but they don't want to follow. They're not antagonistic, but they're not really in either. And then in many cases as well, people are going to be extremely negative in their response, even to the point of, of violence and persecution. And so all of this means that, that Jesus' followers are going to face fear, lots of fear potentially, as they follow him on mission. And the only way to live a life that's not controlled by fear is to fight fear with fear, to fight fear with a better fear. And what we're going to see this morning is that a life free of fear in this controlling way, is a life of bold trust, it's a life of radical loss, and a life of simple reward. A life of bold trust, of radical loss, and simple reward. Now let me just say two things here before we go too much further. And the first one is that obviously we cannot say all that needs to be said about fear here this morning in just the few minutes that we have together in this passage. Um, there's lots more to say about it, lots more the Bible has to say about them, just what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. And secondly, some of you here this morning um, suffer from or think you might be suffering from sort of what is called the chronic anxiety. And if that's where you're at this morning, um, you may need professional counseling, even medication to, to bring that into a place of, of healing. And so if you are in that place where you experience chronic worry, anxiety, um, let us as one of your pastors know. We would love to pray with you and help you get connected with people who can really help um, to have you grow and be healed in that area of your life. But whether you experience sort of chronic anxiety or just you're just a person like all of us uh, who are afraid regularly, a life of fear, a life that is rather free of fear, begins with a bold trust a bold trust that fights fear with a better fear. And Jesus is telling the 12 that even though people are going to persecute them and do all sorts of terrible things to them, they shouldn't be afraid. And, and why shouldn't they be afraid? Because all those people can do, Jesus says, is, is kill you. The worst that these people can do is kill you, which Jesus, that's pretty bad. Um, but Jesus says that's the worst. Um, They can do a lot of things to you. They can actually kill your body, but that's as far as they can go. Jesus is the real one to fear is God who can destroy both body and soul. Look again at verse 26 if you have the text open. 
Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. That first part, basically, Jesus is saying, this proclamation of the gospel, it's a little bit quiet, but eventually this is something you're going to shout to the whole world. And then he says, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see where I'm getting? We have to fight fear with a different, with a better fear. Now, there's two big questions here. First, how does fear overcome fear? And then secondly, what are we supposed to think about hell here and what Jesus says about it? Because again, these are not the sort of verses from Jesus that you find on sort of the, the Hallmark cards uh, in the kind of the, uh, the encouragement section. So one of the biggest and I think most misunderstood themes in the Bible, and it really runs through from the, from the beginning sections of the Bible all the way through the end, is the theme of the fear of the Lord. And if you've spent any time at all reading the Bible or um, listening to people preaching or teaching the Bible, um, you've probably heard this idea of the fear of the Lord. Um, and like I said, it's, it's often misunderstood what it means Um, But the fear of the Lord, the fearing of God who can destroy both body and soul is essential to living a life that's free from fear. Tim and Kathy Keller, I think, do a great job of explaining why this is. Listen to this, what they write. They say, obviously, to be in fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word has some overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something So they write, to fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. And this is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience the trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. So when we fear the Lord, we're so overwhelmed and controlled by his beauty, his goodness, his grace, his power that all the other things, all the other fears that vie for control and influence in our life begin to lose their grip. It doesn't mean that we're never afraid, but if we have this overwhelming, this kind of dominating fear of the Lord, then the other fears begin to take a back seat. They don't have such a loud voice in our lives anymore. But Jesus also says something here that's incredibly sobering, doesn't he? He says, don't just fear the one who can kill the body. Feel the one who can destroy your body and your soul in hell. I mean, that's about as sober warning as you can get. Again, not something you find on the greeting cards from Jesus. But Jesus is bold throughout the Gospels in talking about this. So what are we to think about this? Well, as sober as a warning as it is, and we should hear it for all of its force, we also realize that the, the doctrine of judgment of, of hell actually leads Christians to a life of incredible patience and forgiveness. How does that work? Well, because the doctrine of hell means that God will ultimately deal with every injustice and abuse, either through Jesus' death on the cross or through eternal judgment. And the confidence that God will be judge is what enables Christians to lead lives of radical nonviolence, 
It's what allows them to break cycles of revenge and retaliation. And so, yes, we do work for justice here and now. We don't, we don't ignore that. And God has called us, even some vocationally in, in law enforcement and legislation and in the court system, to f- work actively for justice here and now. But in an ultimate sense, Christians leave vengeance and ultimate justice to God. They don't take it into their own hands. So this is why Christians who have suffered in terrible ways are often able to respond in nonviolence because they know it's not up to them to make it right. You see, if you don't have a firm belief that there is someone, a God, who will ultimately judge right from wrong, who will ultimately adjudicate those circumstances, then it is completely up to you to make it right, which leads to repetitive cycles of revenge, of violence, of retaliation. But if you have confidence that God will be judged one day, it's still massively difficult, but you can actually refrain from responding in retaliation and judgment because God will be judge in the end. So if we fear God, we don't have to fear anyone else because the worst that they can do, the very worst thing they can do is to kill our body. And the one who can harm your soul in the gospel is now radically for you, not against you. And so then Jesus continues with his encouragement here, and he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge them before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny them before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus uses two metaphors here. He uses the metaphor of a sparrow and the metaphors of the the hairs on our head. And the point with both metaphors is the exact same, and that is that you don't have to be afraid because your heavenly Father's got this. He really does. He's got it. He's in control. You see, God, not the devil, is in the details. And he cares for the many billions more birds on earth. There's so many more birds in the world than there are people, and yet he cares for each one. And yet Jesus says, you are so much more valuable than any one of them. He knows the intimate details of you down to the hairs on your head, on the hairs on our head. Now, granted, numbering the hairs on our heads is a bit easier for him uh, in some of us uh, cases, right? But nonetheless, he still knows us intimately. You see, nothing happens outside the will of your loving Heavenly Father. Nothing. Even when you don't understand why things are happening, even when it doesn't seem like they make sense, there's no reason this should be happening, You see, I've found as a pastor, as I've talked with people who've walked through just incredibly awful things in their life, that a deep trust that God really is in control, even when it doesn't make sense, even when there's no possible way that they can see how this is a good thing, is more comforting than the idea that God is out of control. 
and that he couldn't prevent it, that he, that he couldn't stop it, that, that somehow things are crazy and spinning out of control. Nothing happens apart from him. So how bold is your trust? What controls you? What captivates you? Was it Christ, the, the glory and the love of your heavenly Father who knows every detail of your life, who's watching over you in every way? Or is it something else, something less? Are you ashamed of the gospel and of Jesus? Or do you trust in the one who cares for you incomparably more than the sparrows and knows you better than even you do? You see, the, the reason that Jesus says here that if we deny him, that he'll also deny us. It's a puzzling thing a bit that he says there. Why, why is this true? Well, the reason is that ultimately, if faced with, with denying Jesus or choosing something else, when we choose something else, when we deny Jesus in the face of a struggle, what we're ultimately saying is that we trust something else more, that all along something else has really held more sway in our life. So if you're faced with denying Jesus or keeping your job, and you choose to keep your job, ultimately what you're saying is that when push comes to shove, what you really trust to provide for you, to care for you, to give you meaning, significance, love, comfort, protection, security, is not Jesus but your job. So Jesus' point is, when you deny me, what you've re- all you're really saying is that all along you've never really trusted me with everything you've actually been functionally trusting in something else more. You see, fear is a secondary emotion. So what's the source of that fear? What's really controlling you? What are you really looking at to rescue you, to save you? Because remember, fear is about what controls. When you fight fear with the fear of the Lord, you're able to boldly acknowledge Jesus even in the face of great struggle. It doesn't mean that there won't be great struggle, but that we're able to cling in those moments. See, a life without fear is marked by a bold, unashamed trust in Jesus and the gospel. And this life, this sort of life, is always marked by radical loss. It's always marked by radical loss. So a life without fear, it's one of bold trust and one of radical loss. Those two things maybe seem like they would be contradictory, but they actually go hand in hand. And Jesus keeps on rolling with the sort of shocking, almost even offensive statements in the next section, doesn't he? Because listen again closely to what he says beginning in verse 34. He says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, there's radical loss that comes in following Jesus. Ironically, at least in light of how we often talk about the gospel, ironically, including a loss of peace. 
You see, so often in our lives as Christians, we, we want to believe that a life following Jesus is one full of peace, or we have the sense of, well, I have a peace about this. But so often Jesus says, if you really follow me, if you really obey me, you're actually going to encounter strife and difficulty and hardship. Yes, it's true, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and ultimately he will bring peace on earth. But in the time in between, a commitment to following Jesus through thick and thin will often mean strife and hardship. Yes, he does give peace and rest to our souls. We're going to see that vividly in Matthew chapter 11 next week. But following him means we will often encounter a lot of difficulty. And and just to be clear here, Jesus is not saying to not love your family. He's not saying that. Some of you got a little too excited when Jesus said he was going to bring strife between you and your mother-in-law. You're like, finally, I have some textual justification for that. (laughs) What Jesus is saying, though, is that our loyalty to our family, to our kids, comes second to our loyalty to me. Your loyalty to your family, to your friends, to your kids, your whatever it might be, that comes, Jesus says, second to your loyalty to me. It has to be one of the most outrageous things that Jesus says in all of the, all of the gospels. Sometimes I think we don't really hear Jesus for what he's actually saying, but he's saying, I am more important than your family. I'm more important than your spouse, than your, your kids, than your parents. Now again, the Bible is, is very pro-family, right? One of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. When God created the world, he, he called us to be fruitful and multiply. God loves families. Family is a good thing, good thing created by God. But as with all good things created by God, when we turn them into ultimate things, when we turn them into idols, they're bad for everyone. It hurts everyone. For one, if you make your family into an ultimate thing, you are going to place expectations and hopes on your parents or on your spouse or maybe your kids that they can never live up to. So you're always going to be disappointed, and they're going to feel smothered and and crushed. And you're, you're always going to feel like they're never doing enough or they're always letting you down. They're going to feel controlled. So Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 36 this way. He says, well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies. But second, not only does an idolization, a, a making of family, which is a good thing into an ultimate thing, help or sort of hurt those in your family, it, it also hurts those who are single. Because if, as a church, we idolize family, we will always make the gospel and its sexual ethic and its relational blessings of the body of Christ that we're called to be to one another, we'll always make that implausible to those who are unmarried. And the reality is is that, that every one of us begin life single, unmarried. A number of us remain that way throughout life. Jesus gives great dignity to that, as does Paul. You're not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom if you never marry. And many of us, through death or divorce, find ourselves single again in life. And if we make an idol of family, a claim that we make regularly as a church that a life without sex, that a life without marriage does not mean a life without love, 
becomes implausible. We can say it all we want, but if we in the practice idolize family, those who are single will always feel a bit on the margin or maybe a lot on the margin. But ultimately, it isn't just about losing family. It's about losing everything. Because Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Now, this picture, this metaphor, this turn of phrase, take up your cross or, or bear your cross, is one that's kind of entered uh, popular language and culture. So we talk about our cross to bear sometimes, don't we? Um, that we, speaking of a difficult circumstance or a person in our lives, say, well, this is just my cross to bear. They're just my cross to bear. Well, I guess my husband and his obsession with baseball is just my cross to bear for 162 games a year. Um, or this sickness or unpleasantness in, in my job is just my cross to bear. But when Jesus says, take your cross and follow me, Jesus isn't just saying, well, take some unpleasantness and, and come follow me in spite of it. He's saying, come and die. The cross is an instrument of execution. Death to self in every way. Again, Eugene Peterson, so good in his paraphrase here. He says, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. So how much are you willing to lose? In the first century, family was everything. And as we just mentioned a moment ago, family is still such a dominant part of our lives, especially here in the Midwest, right? And yet there's lots of other things that we could add that we struggle to lose. Our reputation, a career, comfort, success. But this call to die, to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, isn't a call to some kind of dour, eeyore life of Christianity where we never have joy or happiness or sadness. In fact, just the opposite. Death to self is the only way to true life. It's the only way to true happiness. Is it painful? Yes. Does it feel like a death often, regularly? Yes, because it is. I often tell couples when I'm marrying them, that getting married will feel like a kind of death at points because it is. You're dying to yourself. But if you can get to a place in your marriage or in your relationships where you say, my own selfishness is my biggest problem, then you're off to a great start. So does it feel like a kind of death? Absolutely. Because it is just that, a death. And yet, is it also the most joyous, thrilling, adventurous, fulfilling way of living life, not only now, but forever? Yes. You see, if you live for yourself now, all you will have is yourself later. If you live for yourself now, all you will have is yourself later. And that, that's ultimately what hell is, just you having yourself alone forever and ever and ever without end, with no relationship with anyone, ultimate isolation and solitude. If you live for yourself now, all you will have is yourself later. If, however, you live for Jesus now, you will have Jesus and everything else later. If you put yourself first, not only do you not get yourself in the end, you lose everything else. 
But if you put Jesus first, not only do you find your life, you, you, you get Jesus, you get yourself, you, you get everything else. If not now, later on in the new heavens and the new earth, later in, in other gospels when Jesus talks about this kind of radical loss, he says, all those who have left family to follow me, who have left all this stuff, you're going to receive back a hundredfold in the new heavens and the new earth. So life without fear, is, it is a life of radical loss. But it is worth it because it's also a life of reward, a life of great reward, a simple reward, but great reward. It's a life of radical gain. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 40 through 42. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And the one who gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying, look, if you just receive my people, if you receive me and the people who love me, you will receive great reward. Jesus says you don't have to be a prophet to receive a prophet's reward. You just have to receive a prophet. You don't have to be an incredible follower, saint of, of, you know, that gets written down in history. If you just receive me and my people, your reward will not be lost. When we receive and love Jesus and his people, we receive and love Jesus, we receive his reward, and it can't be taken away. You see, this promise then of, of life lost, but found in Christ, of reward for simple trust and obedience gives us great hope. And when we fight fear with fear, we have hope. And hope changes everything. Hope is everything. As that, that great theologian, uh, President Snow, uh, said in The Hunger Games, fear does not work as long as they have hope. Fear does not work as long as they have hope. When you have hope of reward, hope of a new life in the new heavens, in the new earth, hope that the worst anyone can do is take my body away and destroy it, but the one who can destroy my body in hell because of the gospel is now radically for me. When you have that kind of hope, Fear just it can't survive. It's like fire trying to live in a room without oxygen. It just can't live. Hope squashes fear. So are you receiving Jesus and those he loves? See, the most important thing about you is what you make of Jesus, ultimately, did you notice the outrageous statements that Jesus makes about himself in this passage? We read a number of verses, Anthony did, and then I did here throughout the message. Let me just put a couple of Jesus' statements back to back. Maybe we missed how radical these are. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny them before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, Jesus, he's saying, receives him who sent me, the Father. 
Again, we've been saying this week after week, but good teachers, just a mere good teacher doesn't say things like that. Madmen say those kinds of things, and messiahs say those kinds of things, right? So, so if Paul were to get up here, or Anthony, or myself, and start saying, look, if you, if you don't follow me exclusively, you're not worthy of me. You say, this, this person's got to, they need help, <laughs> right? Because only madmen and messiahs say those kinds of things. And Jesus wasn't a madman. That's clear from the testimony we have. He's the one true Messiah, our rescuer. Have you received him? He's come for you. In the gospel, he's radically for you, not against you. You see, Jesus was destroyed on the cross. His body was destroyed in death. So that ultimately your soul will never be destroyed. He lost his life so that you can find yours. He lost everything and in so doing received the highest reward, the name that is above every name so that he becomes our highest reward and joy. You see, Jesus is the reward. He is the reward. And his perfect love casts out all fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're as your people, so grateful that you've sent Jesus and so that in the gospel we can treasure you and fear you with a holy fear of awe that controls us but that never is as afraid of you. And that kind of sense of being scared but it's just captivated by the beauty of your holiness and love and goodness to us. Would that fear and the hope that comes when we fear the Lord radically wash away the lesser fears in our life? Would we fear you who can destroy both body and soul far more than those who can just take our life? In Jesus' name.